if you have your Bible today, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. We are continuing in a series there. We're in Luke 10. The text today will be Luke 10, 25 through 37. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible, maybe at least one, hopefully, in the back of a chair in the row in front of you. And if you're using one of the Bibles from there, um, that text in Luke can be found on page 869. So page 869, or Luke 10. And then we also do, um, along with the New Testament reading, an Old Testament reading. So once you find your spot in Luke, just kind of put your finger there or use a, a piece of paper. Or if you have these nice ribbons that come with some Bibles, like mine has, you can leave, leave that there. And then turn over to Leviticus 19, which if you're using one of our chair Bibles, that will be on page 97. Leviticus 19, the Old Testament reading will be Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. So it's, and we'll do that one first, Old Testament and then New Testament. So Leviticus 19, 9 through 18, and then Luke 10, 25 to 37, and the scripture will be read today by Becky Adams. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. You've loved us not because we were lovely, but because you are love. Would you help us to be so aware of your love, so filled with your love, so controlled by your spirit, that your love flows through us to others for your sake. Would you help us this morning as we look into your word, would you help us to see what you want us to see? But would you not let us stop there? Would you change us by your grace into the people that you want us to be for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. The big idea this morning is this. Jesus takes time to care for the weak and helpless, and so should we. Jesus takes time to care for the weak and helpless, and so should we. We're going to ask along with the lawyer here, but hopefully with a better heart, who is my neighbor? And then ask, well, who is the good Samaritan in this story that Jesus tells? And then how should we respond to Jesus? So this is a well-known story. I'm sure you've read it many times or are very familiar with its contours. We'll take a quick walk through it and then think about what that means for us. I mean, it's interesting how even the word Samaritan, right? We're we're very familiar with the good Samaritan, even the concept of a good Samaritan. People know that story comes from the Bible, but it's also made its way into common usage as well. If you just look for a definition of Samaritan, the number one definition is going to be something like a charitable or helpful person. And then the the number two definition will be how everyone else would have understood it in this time when Jesus was telling that story. They would have thought something very different than that. But this story is so well known uh, that even when there's an accident and someone's on the side of the road or even like what happened Today, with moral aid, and, and, and a good Samaritan came and went out of their way and helped. Um, and that's fine. That's a perfectly appropriate use of the word. But it kind of also 
takes out some of the sting that would have been felt when Jesus was telling this story. I mean, we have ministries called Samaritan Ministries, which is a health cost sharing program for Christians. There's Samaritan's Purse. And so there, there are actually quite a few ministries with Samaritan in the name. And those ministries are about compassion, about caring for people who need help. And that is appropriate. That is what it's about. But part of the heart of the question, who is my neighbor, is, is the answer becomes deeper and more beautiful when we understand that it's a Samaritan who is the Savior in this story. So with that as kind of introduction, we'll back up. Jesus is speaking. Um, Jonathan referenced when he was sharing earlier in our gathering. It, w- it was last week, uh, Stephen from Frankfurt was here preaching for us about the sending of the 72 and their return and Jesus saying, don't rejoice in that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life, that you belong to me, that you will be with me, that you live. And then Jesus prays to his father, thanking him for his work in opening eyes to see and in closing some other people's eyes who think they can see. And then in the verses right before this, he tells the disciples, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then we have our text beginning. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And this lawyer would be one who doesn't see. He doesn't get it. And we can tell that by his posture. He's there putting Jesus to the test. And sometimes we're tempted to do that. We think we're going to test Jesus and find out if he really knows what's best. Find out if he really loves us. If he's really going to take care of us. But we are the ones who would never pass his test. Right? It's not about Jesus passing tests for us. It's much more important that we pass his test than that he pass ours. But this lawyer stands up to test him. And here's that question. Teacher, what shall I do? This is from verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as far as it goes, that's a good question. That's a question that really anyone should have been asking Jesus. How do I get life? You are the teacher, right? In John, when so many people are going away, he turns to the 12 and says, will you also go away? And they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is who Jesus is. So it's a good question, but it's not asked from a good heart. He doesn't want to know the answer. He wants to trap Jesus. He wants to trick Jesus, show that Jesus isn't really as great of a teacher as all the other people seem to think that he is. And Jesus responds with a question of his own. Jesus is so good at this. He doesn't always just answer the question. He asks another question to help you think, to draw out our hearts. He said to him in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What is written in the law? That's a really good question to ask a lawyer And before you're thinking like, oh yeah, there's so many lawyer jokes and they're so funny. There are a lot of them and they are very funny, but they're not really about this guy. So a lawyer is one of those words that has continued from, you know, kind of that day down to this day. But all the lawyer jokes that are now 
running through your mind and you're like, you know, tell at least one. No. Uh, it would have been a very different situation. This isn't what you think of when you think of a lawyer. This is a guy who would have been recognized as an expert in the Jewish law. In Leviticus 19, 9 through 18 that Becky just read for us. In the Torah especially that we looked at last summer, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. He would have been an expert in that law. So it's not that this is the guy who, you know, when, when you have an accident at work, he represents you so the company will do the right thing. He is the person who's looked to as a spiritual and religious leader, an expert. When you have your questions, you'd come to him for answer. So just so we don't get tripped up by, you know, this lawyer's trying to do lawyer stuff with Jesus. It's like, no, this is a question about the law asked by Jesus to an expert on the law, and he answers well. Verse 27, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, which that's from Deuteronomy 6, a very famous passage in the Old Testament. And then he adds a second one from Leviticus 19, which Becky read for us a few moments ago. And your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great job. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And now the lawyer, perhaps feeling the weakness of his position, because who has done this? You know, the lawyers ask, what can I do? Is there this big thing I can do? And he says, do that. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. So perhaps he's feeling now the weakness of his position in the debate. And so now he asks a question, tries to turn it back to Jesus. And who is my neighbor? Now Luke tells us, so we already know, because the narrator helps us understand, that he did not ask this question in good faith. Right? This doesn't have to be a bad question. I, I think we want to ask this question, who is my neighbor? He doesn't really want to know. He wants to be able to know who's not his neighbor, because then he doesn't have to love them. Luke tells us he asked it, desiring to justify himself to make himself look right, to make it look like he is doing the right thing. Perhaps this lawyer maybe thinks that he's okay on the love for God part. And the first part was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. It's like, I'm pretty good at that. I mean, everyone would know. Look at who I am. But this neighbor thing, we got to make sure we narrow that down just a little bit. So maybe he's okay on the love for God part, he thinks, but he needs to find a loophole on the love of neighbor. And so we want to ask that question along with him. Who is my neighbor? Now surely, he thinks, there are some people I can safely put outside the neighbor box, right? There, there's got to be a limit to this. There have to be some people I can put outside the neighbor box. There have to be some people I can actually put in the enemy category. We like having that as a category because then it's like we definitely don't have to think of them 
as our neighbor. And certainly there are people who are too far removed from us for us to be a neighbor to them in any meaningful way. But at his heart, he's asking, how do I get eternal life? How do I enter God's kingdom apart from genuine love from the heart for others? And Jesus' simple answer to him would be, you don't. You don't. But instead of a theological treatise, Jesus tells him a story. Jesus is also very, very good at that. And so he tells us the story with which we are so familiar. So let's not, re- not forget the, the backdrop. Why is Jesus telling us this story? He's helping this lawyer and us, everyone who will read the gospel according to Luke. Jesus is telling this story for every one of us to know. The high bar that is set. To not say, well, uh, here's the situations where that certainly can't apply to me, and here's why I definitely don't have to do that here. Jesus is like, no. So he tells us a story that would have been shocking in his day, and so we want to feel that. So he starts off in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. For us who live very far away from Jerusalem and Jericho, it's like, okay, he was going somewhere, right? But the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous. Notoriously dangerous. There were sections where it's very desert-like as you're going down, not in direction, but in elevation from Jerusalem down to Jericho. There are desert areas in between. There are also places where the path is very narrow and it would be very easy for an ambush to be set. And that is exactly what happens in the story. So it's not just random, oh, he was going on this trip. He was going on a very dangerous road and he found himself in danger. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And then we see the possible helpers introduced. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now, again, remember, Jesus is telling this story in a particular context. Priests would have been highly honored, highly respected. This is someone who is a spiritual leader, a guide to others in how to follow the law, how to love God and your neighbor as yourself one who could answer disputes and would lead you and be a mentor to others in how they should follow God's law. The priest was going down that road, and what did he do? When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. What is a Levite? Someone from the tribe of Levi. A priest would have been in the line of Aaron, the original high priest, Moses' brother, You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron to be a priest, and that was very important work, but there was a whole lot of other work that needed to be done in the temple, and that was done by the Levites, the rest of the tribe of Levi. So he wouldn't be quite on the same level as the priest, but this is someone who spends a lot of time in God's temple, 
someone who spends a lot of time around the things of God, someone who would have been highly respected as a man of God. And so Jesus is saying the priest, probably like your, your highest level of respect guy, he passes by on the other side. Who's maybe next? A Levite. And he, too, passes by on the other side. And then he introduces the contrast. But a Samaritan. Now, we talked about Samaritans a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem there at the end of Luke 9. Remember, he passed through Samaria. There were Samaritans who rejected him. They would have already been looked down upon. Samaritans would have been thought of as half-breeds. They would have been thought of as religiously corrupt. Their, their worship is so different. They're worshiping the wrong God. They're not good Jews. They are not part of us. They're different from us. Yeah, now they're living in the land, kind of in the middle, as there are some in Galilee in the north. There are Jews in Galilee in the north and Judah in the south. And then Samaria in the middle. And we said, you know, most of the time when people were traveling from one to the other, they'd actually go around so they didn't have to go through. We also said the feeling was mutual. It's not just that, oh, there's those Samaritans and everyone looks down on them. It's like, well, sure, everyone if you're a Jew. But if you're a Samaritan and there were, you know, it wasn't just the good Samaritan, the woman at the well. There were a bunch of them living in this middle of the country. And they didn't like everyone else just as much as everyone else didn't like them. They were different. They were wrong. This is not the type of person who should be the hero in a story told by a good teacher. A Jewish teacher would not tell a story this way. If it was just, well, I just want to teach people about compassion, you wouldn't tell it like this. Jesus is poking at something important because he's teaching this lawyer and us who is your neighbor? In many cases, it's the very person that you're sure you don't have to treat like a neighbor. When you think about how Jesus tells this, he's, he's a Samaritan. This guy's the hero in the story, right? Now Samaritan means person who does good stuff for other people when they're in trouble. Jews would have absolutely hated that. For some of you, it'd be like saying the good Democrat. For others, it'd be like saying the good Republican. The good Mets fan. It's like, it just it doesn't work, right? <laughs> I have to say it now, right? The good Cowboys fan. I know. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> Thanks for that, Joey. I mean, this would be someone you, you know is, like, not good, right? It'd be like all of a sudden, and Loki, out of the goodness of his heart, helped someone. And you're thinking, Loki definitely wrote this play, Right? <laughs> The only story where Loki is a good, honest guy is the story that Loki himself writes as he pretends to be his father. 
it just wouldn't work. You can't make this guy be the good guy. But it's this Samaritan, the one who would have been hated, the one who would have been looked down on, the one who, if it had been him on the side of the road, no one stops. And he'd have every reason to feel the same way when he passes a Jew. See, the first two guys, they have much more in common with this person who's on the side of the road than the one who actually helps. The Samaritan looks on the interests even of a man he doesn't know and would naturally be enemies with. So who's my neighbor? In this text, it's the weak and the helpless. The man on the side of the road, he can't help himself. There's no gas station a half mile down the road if, that if you just like help him a little bit for a couple minutes, everything will be fine. This is not, you know, let's just make sure he's stable and then he's okay. This is a man who's alone, most likely in a desert, most likely badly injured, says they left him for dead. The idea is that he is not going to last. If one more person passes by, he may not make it. Our neighbors are the weak and the helpless. And we're kind of used to that, and it's like, okay, well, we'll do some benevolent stuff over there to those other people. Can I give some money and kind of like feel a little bit better? But for Jesus, it's not just the weak and the helpless who's our neighbor. It's our natural enemies. The people that we would have every reason, humanly speaking, to say, Somebody else can help him. It's not my job. I don't need to do that. So that ultimately, it's the weak, the helpless, our natural enemies. So you come to realize, like, no one's left out. Who is your neighbor? Everyone. Everyone is your neighbor. In essence... He kind of flips the question around, right? He says, the lawyer had asked, who is my neighbor? Thinking about who he can exclude from being his neighbor. But Jesus, after telling the story, how does he ask? In verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Do you see how that's flipped? He's looking for, like, who, who's my neighbor Jesus is saying, don't worry about who's your neighbor, be a neighbor. The Samaritan proved to be a neighbor, even though there would be no reason that he should be. And the man has to answer in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What Jesus prescribes here is massive. It's huge. It's comprehensive. It's impossible, right? The lawyer tries to limit the scope to make it easier, and Jesus expands the scope to make it impossible. Because even from that text in Leviticus 19, you'd have thought, okay, we're supposed to like, you know, not do our whole field so that people can come and get some food. That's still not very personal, but it's like, okay, I, I did the thing that I'm supposed to do. I followed the law. We're not supposed to lie about our neighbors. But usually you'd be thinking about pretty near neighbors. And Jesus, and this is what he does with so much of the Old Testament law, when they say, let's make it a little less so we can get out of it. He says, no, 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 it's more. It's about your heart. It's even harder. You think keeping the law 
is impossible. It is, and the bar's not here. It's here. Are you good now? <laughs> Go and do likewise. Jesus expands the scope to make it impossible. And so we cannot just read this story and go, oh, who's my neighbor? Okay, who am I supposed to love? That's going to be hard, but I know I'm supposed to love them because Jesus told me to. That's not wrong, but it is incomplete. That is not what Jesus wanted people to feel from this story because the lawyer is getting the point. I can't do this. I already haven't done this. And I can't just decide now and start doing it and do it perfectly, which leads us to ask the question, not only who is my neighbor, but who is the Good Samaritan? Who is this person in Jesus' story? Jesus says, do this and you will live, but it becomes clear to any reader of Luke's gospel that only one person has done this, and he lives. We're told even now he ever lives above to intercede for us, pleading his blood for us. Who is the good Samaritan? Let's not be busy thinking about how we're supposed to be the good Samaritan until we understand that we needed the good Samaritan. And that good Samaritan is Jesus. I mean, the man on the side of the road, he's weak, he's helpless, he's a natural enemy to the Samaritan. Does that sound familiar at all? We're weak. We are helpless. We are unable to obey God's commands on our own. We are unable. You know what that makes us? Natural enemies of God. God is the king, the rightful ruler of the universe. And he has revealed to us his ways in his word. And we've said, yeah, but not that one for me, not with that person, not now. And we have rejected, just like Adam and Eve did, we have rejected his righteous rule over us and therefore deserve his righteous wrath. See, Jesus is the good Samaritan, the savior that we wouldn't want if we felt like there was any other option. I can make this work. I can figure it out. I can make myself a little better. That's okay, Jesus. I mean, can you imagine the man on the side of the road who's dying and the Samaritan comes and he realizes he's a Samaritan and it's like, oh, you know, I saw the priest and the Levite, but I really want to wait for somebody who's a little more like me. No, he's ready to receive the help because he knows that he needs it. His situation is desperate. And until our situation is desperate, we will try to figure it out ourselves. Jesus is the Savior we wouldn't even want. Like, that's okay, Jesus, I've got this. I'll just try a little harder. I'll be a little better. I'll study a little more. But can we acknowledge how foolish that is? Indeed, we are the ones who are weak. We are the ones who are helpless. Romans 5, 6 that we read together near the beginning this morning, Paul says that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. He gave his life for his enemies to make us friends, to make us his family. The Samaritan in this story stopped. The other ones, you know, maybe they were 
on their way to give a speech somewhere, and that was important. You know, I have a hundred people to reach. I can't reach this one. But the one was right in front of them. The Samaritan took the time to care. And Jesus takes the time to care. Jesus could have stayed in heaven, enjoying the praises of the celestial beings, and instead he came to be one of us, knowing he would be rejected by his own, that his own would not receive him. Jesus took the time to care, and Jesus, at great cost to himself, paid the price for our treason. The Samaritan in Jesus' story pays the price for this man to be taken care of. He pays a couple days' wages. It would have been a couple hundred dollars in today's money to have this man taken care of with a promise to pay even more if that's what it took. And Jesus paid it all. The Samaritan binds up the wounds of the man. Jesus didn't just bind up our wounds. He was wounded for us. It's by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus didn't pass by on the other side. He came to rescue and to heal us. Jesus is indeed the good Samaritan. So how do we respond to Jesus? We've heard like our neighbors, everyone, even the ones that we for sure think ought to be able to be safely in the enemy category and we don't have to love them anymore. Certainly the person who's so different from me that we have nothing in common, I, I don't have to love them. They can get help from their own people. How do we respond to Jesus with that kind of definition of neighbor and then realizing we're not the good Samaritan in the story, we're the half-dead guy on the side of the road who needs a savior and we have one. He has saved us by his grace. How do we respond to Jesus? What does responding to Jesus look like with this story? Well, again, we can't just jump to like, okay, here's what we got to do. First, recognize you need a savior. If we are ever truly going to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, we must see that we are the weak and the helpless, not the good Samaritan. And so, in a very significant way, that makes us more like other people than unlike them. We may be very aware of differences, but the fact that we're both the half-dead guy on the side of the road puts us in the same company. And so there's no, I'm the good person who has it all together, and let me reach down and help you in your weakness. We're all the ones who are weak. And so we must first recognize that we need a Savior. And the lawyer wanted to narrow down that definition to make it kind of doable, and we, we tend to do things like that ourselves. But even if we could somehow legitimately narrow the definition of a neighbor, and even the definition of love, we still don't even do that. Even the laws we make up for ourselves, we can't keep. We all fall short regularly. We're not good people who just like, oh, you know, I slipped up that one time, all right. And a month later, oh, look at, look at that. I guess I'm not perfect. Like, if you think that's what's going on in your life, ask the people who live with you. 
James said in James 3.2, we all stumble in many ways. Galatians 3, Paul reminds us that no human being is made right in the sight of God through the works of the law. Instead, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. See, we are all as hopeless as the lawyer and as helpless as the guy on the side of the road. We're not the good Samaritan. We're everyone else, all the bad people in the story. That's me. That's you. We're as hopeless as the lawyer and as helpless as the guy on the side of the road. Because of our sin, because of our failure to love God with everything we have. And there will be more on that next week as we look at the story of Mary and Martha in the last few verses of this chapter. But because of our failure to love God with everything we have, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We deserve God's judgment, but in God's mercy, his judgment fell on Jesus instead of us, so that now everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is saved from God's wrath and inherits eternal life, all because of what Jesus has done for us. If you have been working at being good. Saying like, I know there's a God out there and I need to live up to his standards. Give it up. You can't do it. So for some, maybe that's been all of your experience in trying to be a Christian. That sure, Jesus is, I guess, important and he's a good example for us to follow, but it's really about I've got to do enough so that on the last day when I stand before God, I can say, you know, look at the things that I've done. If that's your approach, you can give it up today. I would urge you, trust in Christ. It is only by his merit that you will live. When Jesus said, do this and you will live, he wasn't implying that the lawyer could actually do this. He was pointing up for him the fact that he couldn't, that he never could. And so if you've been trying to be good and frustrated because you just, you just can't, I can't, I can't. Don't run away from that. Don't justify yourself. Don't try to say, well, well but I really can because I am a nice person in this area even if I'm really bad in these other areas. No, own that. Jesus came to die for sinners. That's us. So we don't have to pretend We can say, yes, I have fallen short, and we can confess our sin to him, our trusting our own way instead of him, and cast ourselves on him, trusting him to forgive us our sins through his sacrifice in our place. And he didn't only die for our sins. He rose from the grave on the third day, showing his power over sin and death forever, so that everyone who trusts in him can have life both now and forever. You can trust him today. And if this doesn't make a lot of sense to you, you're like, this is brand new. I've never heard anything like this before. We would love to talk with you, to hear some of your story and talk about how Jesus meets you in that and provides everything you need for life both now and forever. So first, recognize you need a Savior. But then second, how else do we respond to Jesus? Repent and love your neighbor. 
So we don't want to be on one end of the pendulum, which is like, okay, Jesus told us to be good, we got to be good, period. But we also don't want to swing over to the other side, and some Christian teachers do, where we go, the main thing here is to realize we can't do it and we trust Jesus, great, let's move on. No, Jesus doesn't mean for us to just move on. He means for his love for us to change us, to look like him. So growing up in Christ's likeness isn't just being able to say the gospel to yourself really well. It's, yes, being aware of that. And then by God's grace, making every effort to obey his commands. Knowing that we are fully and freely forgiven and completely accepted in Christ. Out of that assurance, we strive to love our neighbor as ourselves. So recognizing that we're really the one who needs saving, that's not the only takeaway. We don't say, whew, glad I don't have to do that because Jesus did. Because we are called to follow Jesus. And that means being like him. This is what James called in James 2.8, the royal law that you love your neighbor as yourself. So this is not just an Old Testament thing that was fulfilled in Jesus. It has application for us Romans 13.8 says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Galatians 6.10 tells us, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And of course, the gospel and epistles of John uh, is replete with Jesus' commands to love our brother and how loving our brother reveals our love for God or our lack of love for our brother reveals our lack of love for God. So these two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor, they are tight. They are connected. So Jesus would say, don't worry about who's your neighbor. Be a neighbor. Some of us don't even much bother being aware of what's going on in other people's lives. We have enough of our own things to deal with and we're doing our things and we just need people to help us. So perhaps there are some this morning who need to be shaken out of preoccupation with our own things and to learn, as Paul exhorted us in Philippians 2, to look on the interests of others instead of our own. If we're thinking about it as a spectrum again, we probably have some people on the other end Others see needs everywhere they look and can be easily overwhelmed. There is so much wrong in the world. There's so much wrong in our own homes. There's so much wrong on our blocks. There's so much wrong in our city, in our nation, in the world. And now we have, because of these things we carry in our pockets all the time and sit at, at work for a bunch of us, all day, we have instant access to all those things. And it's not just when we look it up, right? It screams at us. Here's the next big thing that's horrible. If you are one who is seeing all those things and being overwhelmed, I think Jesus would tell you, don't try to carry the weight of the world. 
you can't do it. But Jesus, the true Good Samaritan, is really doing that. Despite all indications to the contrary, Jesus is doing that just fine. He is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He has carried our weight. And he even now carries the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he means to carry some of that weight through you. So you can't carry the weight of the whole world. I can't carry the weight of the whole world. But Jesus does mean to carry some of the weight through his people. For someone. As you've heard said here before, we can't do everything. But we can do something. And so when we're processing that question, who is my neighbor? It's beginning to ask, what is that something that I can do? One way we can think about that we're thinking about who is my neighbor, if, it, if, it, if I can't really be a neighbor to everyone in the world, and we, and we can't, we are limited. We're not like Jesus in that respect. So how do we be like Jesus and be a neighbor? First, start close and work your way out from there. Notice in the story even that the Samaritan was already on the road, right? It's not that he was in his town and heard about it and said, oh, I'll go help that guy. Right Now, we have to think from how he responded. Perhaps he would have done that. But he was on the way. He was already walking right past this guy. He didn't have to go out of his way. In fact, the other guys had to go out of their way to avoid helping. Right? This priest, this Levite, it's like the guy's right there. And it's like, yeah, you know what? It's, boy, I love this side of the road today. They had to go out of their way not to help. The Samaritan stays in the way and helps. I think there's a a lesson for us there in who is my neighbor? Who are the people who are right in front of you? Start close and work your way out from there. So when we think about about that, we start in our own homes. Do you have a roommate? Suite mate? An apartment mate? That's your neighbor, whether you pick them or not. Whether you think they're cool or annoying or frustrating or whatever, that is your neighbor. Do you have a spouse? That is your neighbor. Do you have children? It was already referenced when my wife was sharing earlier. We have, we have children, and we have to remind ourselves sometimes they are our neighbor. And any parents, you know, don't, don't look down on me because of that, because I know, right? That's your neighbor. Those are ones that God has called you to love. And so for the moms, especially moms who are at home with a bunch of little ones, and you're going, oh, love my neighbor, okay, there's like 40 houses on my block, and so I need to... Now, if God gives you grace to do some things with the houses on your block, that's wonderful. And especially your near neighbors, yes and amen. Take your kids out and be out on your block and meet other people. But don't forget that your kids are your neighbor. 
Do you have other family around? That's your neighbor. The kids are mostly downstairs, but I had some application for them anyway. Maybe they'll all watch this on YouTube later. The one you see being bullied at school because they're different. That's your neighbor. The one who's sitting alone at lunch because they don't have any friends and you're comfortably there with yours. That's your neighbor. The one who's being left out of the game. That's your neighbor. And it doesn't happen just with kids, right? There's people at work, yeah, no one likes them and everyone knows why. Because they don't deserve it. Okay, that's your neighbor. The one you see sitting alone at church. Maybe someone who's new or someone who's been here for a while and it's like, well, no one ever seems to sit in the row with them. That's your neighbor. Getting a little bit more broad, the immigrant. It's specifically referenced in Leviticus 19. It's certainly implied in what Jesus teaches because not just immigrants. This would be like immigrants coming from countries that are openly our enemies. That would never happen here. That's your neighbor. But they're different religiously. They're not like us. That's your neighbor. The refugee. That's your neighbor. The one who's ethnically, culturally, religiously different. We have nothing in common. That's your neighbor. Now in each situation, loving your neighbor is not going to look exactly the same. Even just in that list. You can't do all the things for all the people. But you can do the thing that's in front of you to do with that person. To speak up for the one who is helpless. The one who is hurting, the one who is in need. So what can we do? We start close to home and work our way out. It can show up even in how we vote. We're tempted, and in some places even taught, vote for what's best for you, because no one else will. And that's part of how Christians should be different from other people, not the same as other people. Now, in an ideal world, what's best for you is also what's best for your neighbor (laughs) so that there's no conflict there. But we can consciously choose to vote or advocate for policies that don't only favor ourselves. There are some formal ways through connections here that you can join others in loving our neighbors. One of those is with the Kalaji family. They've been connected with us for coming up on three years, right? In the winter. Almost three years. And they're refugees from Syria, from Aleppo. And they've been now here in the States. They're in their, I guess, fourth year because they'd already been here several months But we got connected with them almost three years ago. And there are people who sit with you on Sunday who are caring for them. Um, One of the ways that the connection is maintained is that um, members of the family actually clean our um, church building during the week. And they get paid for that. And that helps being part of their income stream for the family. 
one particular way that you could help. You know, I, I love the refugees. I hate that the number of refugees is being limited. I want to stand up for them. I want to help. We have someone who's actually our neighbor that we already know, that we already have contact with, connections with, that you can be a neighbor to. And there's actually a very specific way you can be a neighbor to them. The kids are really struggling in school. I mean, can you imagine you don't know English, you've missed, what, four years of school while they were in a camp in Jordan waiting to be able to come here? Then you finally get here and you just get thrown into school, like your local Philly neighborhood school. Why aren't you keeping up? I wouldn't keep up. None of us would. So, there's a real need for some of the kids who are still school-aged, just helping them with homework. And you can pick the weeknight. Every week or every other week from 6.30 to 8 o'clock in the evening. So if you have time for that, and if you're saying, yes, I love, I love the refugees and I want to help, here are real refugees right in front of you that you can help in a very practical way as we continue to love them in tangible ways and to speak the gospel to them. There have been some very encouraging conversations and times where we've wondered, are, are they coming close to seeing Islam is not the answer and to trusting in Christ? And that hasn't happened yet, but we're still praying that it will, and still loving them while we wait. You might say, well, three years, shouldn't we have moved on to someone else? They still need care. They still need love. And sure, we did officially sign up for a limited time, but that becomes part of our testimony to them. It's not just that like, well, we, we did that, so now you're good, figure it out. Where they need help, we want to come alongside. So, if that's something that piques your interest, even if you're not ready to, you know, sign anything, you don't have anything for anybody to sign anyway, um, talk to Jonathan DeHart. He and Sue um, lead that effort and are constantly engaged in that effort. So talk with Jonathan DeHart after we're done. Another way, if you say, I love the, the immigrant and the refugee, wonderful. Here's a real way you can do it. Grow Northeast, that Sue, who's out of town this week, she leads the one here in, well, not here in Mayfair, but in Mayfair, just down the road from us. And there are several of you who participate in that, whether as teachers, whether as um, helpers, whether as childcare workers, so that the kids can be taken care of, so that the adults can learn English. That's a very real need for people coming into a new culture. And there's a whole lot here in the Northeast. There are a lot of people who have that need. So their, their year has started already, and I think they're well-staffed for this year, but that's one of the things that we bring up every year is it's starting up again, and we're so grateful to God for those of you who are loving your neighbor that way. Alpha Care was mentioned earlier today. There are opportunities to donate, opportunities to volunteer. We're grateful for how our kids have kind of taken up that banner and are active in that too. We actually had Alpha Care reach out to us just in the last month or so saying, hey, 
you know, the stuff that the kids raised money for that they bought that was like outside of our budget, we're out of those things. Do you think you guys can do something like that again? Because we love being able to give those onesies to the moms who decided to keep their babies. So even our kids are involved in loving their neighbor, loving the helpless, right? I mean, these are the ones they cannot speak up for themselves. They are the definition of helpless. And we have an opportunity to help, right? in our own city. Another way to do that is to foster or adopt. And there are some here who are participating in that directly by fostering and adopting. Yes and amen. Again, helpless, needing love, needing care. Sometimes very wrenching situations where you're not going to get a whole lot of love back. And there's a lot of uncertainty with it. That's kind of what love looks like. Another way that may not be what we think of immediately would be Christianity Explored, what we're doing right now on Monday nights. Maybe the people who are coming aren't weak or helpless physically, but they are spiritually. And it's exciting to see several of you serving, whether planning or preparing the meals, participating and leading discussions at tables, watching children so that the adults can participate freely, or leading the whole thing. As you're doing that, you are loving your neighbor. And maybe with the way your schedule's arranged right now, you're not in a position to do these things yourselves, but you can help others be able to do them. So like for those in our church you know are fostering, love those kids along with them. Come alongside them. Let them know that you're there. When they get a new placement, take them a meal. Walk with one another, even if, well, we don't have a room for that and we, we can't do the requirements right now and that's not what God's called us to exactly. We can still be called as church family to participate with one another and to support one another. Or maybe you don't even know where to start. So we said start close and work your way out. But the other thing and the last thing is ask the Spirit to guide you and then to empower you. Ask him to give you a love for others that equals your love for yourself. Ask him to help you obey this command and others like it, like in Philippians 2, that you would look on the interests of others instead of your own interests. One way to ask the question if we're ready for this is, are you available to be interrupted by the needs of someone else. Often we're so busy, and they're all good things, hopefully. But are we busy doing good things and passing by our neighbor on the other side? See, Jesus doesn't say love your neighbor when it's convenient. Love your neighbor when you have time. Love your neighbor when it's easy. That's the whole point. If it were easy, we would not belong to him. Loving your neighbor is going to cost you. It's going to cost time. It's going to cost money. It's going to cost comfort. But there's, a, there's a key near the end of it, right? It's love your neighbor. How? As yourself. And this really helps us, right? It doesn't mean that everyone has the same love language as you do, and so you do exactly what you would want done for you in every situation. 
But you think about what kind of care would I want to receive? And this is an opportunity to love someone else. It's like the Discover commercials. You've seen the Discover card commercials where the, the customer service person is the same person as the other person. I love when our kids see one of the new ones. It's like, that girl likes, looks like the other girl. And it's like, you're getting it, right? And their tagline is, we treat you like you'd treat you. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. It's not just, oh, well, I'll, I'll do a thing and then I can be done. You don't want that kind of love. You want people to move toward you genuinely, not for anything for themselves, but because they love you. And so ask the Spirit to guide you. Like there is a whole world out there. I can't do everything. What is the something I'm supposed to do? Who are the someones I'm supposed to love? And ask for grace to see and to move toward the poor, the weak, the helpless, the marginalized, the half-dead on the side of the road, like Jesus moved toward you in love. Jesus takes time to care for the weak and helpless, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, as those who have been made right with God through faith in Jesus' work, so should we. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that you in Jesus have loved us like this. And would you help us even now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together? Would you help us to remember Christ and to know, to know, to know your great love for us and then be able to go and give that love to other people by your strength, for your glory, and for their joy. In Jesus' name, amen.